Uh, we've been uh, looking at the book of, short book of Titus, only three chapters, and this today is our fourth and concluding um, installment, if you will, uh, uh, on uh, our meditation on this book. And I would like to turn your attention to God's Word uh, in Titus chapter 3, and we'll look at the first eight verses. They're printed for you um, in the 1984 uh, edition of the New International Version in your bulletin, but please follow, follow along in the translation you may have brought uh, with you. Hear then the word of God through the Apostle Paul to Titus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Thus far in God's word, and errant and sure, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, we come to the end of this small book in the New Testament. We realize that we're just beginning our walk with you. You're just beginning your work in us. Thank you for what you have done on the cross of Calvary and in our hearts in bringing us to faith and repentance. Trust in Jesus. Acknowledgement of his lordship. Oh, Father, we would pray that you might continue your sanctifying work in our lives that the community around us in Kennesaw and beyond might see that there is a king in Israel. His name is Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. I remember when our children were small, Louise will remember very well, and, and uh, they would do something that was disruptive or or not particularly forethoughtful. You know, children can do that. And um, everything was very orderly for me. I'd come out of the Naval Academy and, and then come out of uh, 
uh, service for years in, as a naval officer, and, and I was juggling, used to juggling many jobs, and I, I just didn't need complications like that, you know. And, and I would say, oh, how could they do such a thing? So they never get away with that in the Navy. <laughs> I actually said that more than once, I, I confess, to my chagrin. And my wife, of course, would patiently smile and say, but Sam, they're children, they're not in the Navy. <laughs> Which is quite true, of course. We don't, or at least shouldn't, expect our little children to have the maturity of adults. They grow into that. But, but, but uh, think for a moment, what if someone my age, God forbid, acted like a three-year-old? It's cute for a three-year-old. It's not cute for somebody pushing 70. <laughs> Something very, very wrong here. That's not healthy. Well, you know, there's sometimes a perversion of the gospel that we may hear that is insistent that as long as we say the right things, that what we continue to do doesn't matter so much. Jesus died for those on the cross, so they're taken care of. So how we live doesn't really matter that much. We give our assent to the truths that we claim to believe. And, and then we unfortunately misrepresent the gospel. And we become like the people of the Old Testament of whom it was said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We cannot say that we truly love God, who is holy, without loving His holiness and wanting to be more like Him. We love His faithfulness. We want to be faithful. We love His compassion. We want to be compassionate. We love His truthfulness. We want to be people of truth, and so on. All those, what are sometimes called attributes, better described as perfections, of a holy God. And holy simply means different, separate, not the same. And God is the most holy and utterly, ultimately the only holy one. The holy angels of Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 of his prophecy, the sinless holy angels hide their eyes before the throne of the holy God. Everything else in all creation has, at best, a derivative holiness conferred by the absolute and eternally holy God. But the text before us tells us that God, this God, this holy God, calls us as believers to live out our lives as reflections of His grace and presence. The, pardon the expression, Shekinah, or dwelling, presence in the Hebrew Old Testament, of God embodied in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the pillar of cloud and of fire, and of the angel of the Lord that passed before his people as he led them to the promised land. God calls us as believers to live out our lives as reflections of his grace and presence. And if I were to say... The sermon in one sentence, brothers and sisters, it's that. And it's true because there is such a thing as the old for us. 
that which God has enabled us to put aside, to lay aside. In fact, he has put aside in us. And there is such a thing as a new, that which is called into being within us and is perfecting in us and is promised to complete in us. So let's consider those in turn, each in its place. First, with regard to the old. Believers, the Scripture teaches, were once no different from anyone else. Verse 3, at one time we too were foolish. In what ways were we foolish? Well, we were deceived, verse 3 goes on to say, deceived and enslaved. Now, it's one thing to be deceived. It's another to be enslaved. To be deceived means that someone or something has enticed us to see things differently from the way they really are. And how are things as they really are? They're the way that God made things and the way he sees them to be. And if we are enticed to see them any other way, we are deceived. That was the deception in the Garden of Eden by the, the tempter to see things differently than what God had said they were and were to be. But to be enslaved, oh, I've had people say, I'm not enslaved. I've had to smile and say, oh, the difference is you're, you're just not aware of it. <laughs> what? What? I'm not enslaved. Yes, we all are until God does a work in our heart. I don't need the Lord. Well, why? Oh, I'm not so bad as somebody else I can tell you about. So I'm not a slave. I can make my own choices. Oh, but you see, we only make our choices with the freedom of our will, unquote, quote, unquote, if insofar as our will is expressed within our own desires, our own value systems, our own goals that we have for ourselves. And if those are all amiss, our, quote, free choices, end quote, are all wrong. We're slaves to those choices. Slaves to those values. Slaves to that worldview. Slaves to those goals in our lives. And the scripture says we lived in mutual hatred of others. This is a strong sentence. Being hated, the NIV translates it, and hating one another. Now, uh, in the English, it sounds like they're the same words. Being hated and hating one another, very different words. Being, I'll translate it uh, my own way, being despicable, despised. So I'm not despised by people. Nobody better despise me. It says that we were viewed by others as despicable. <gasps> That's a tough nut to swallow, especially for those who don't see their own sin. For me... When I don't see my own sin, it's easy for us to see the speck in another's eye, Jesus says, and not see the plank in our own. But then the word hating really is a strong word. It means that we really did wish ill toward other people. Now, again, I, I remember speaking with a very gifted uh, woman, um, senior to me in years, and who had done a, a great number of things that were uh, significant achievements in the eyes of, of the world, and they were, and in the arts, music. 
And she says, oh, I've never sinned. My children have never sinned. We're good people. We aren't like that. And she would take passages like this and say, see, I don't hate people. People don't hate me. What do you mean? And the problem with that is that, first of all, we're desensitized to the nature of sin, that it really is a matter of the heart, and it works out from there. Jesus said, you know, looking lustfully at a person of another gender is adultery. Whoa. What was the penalty for adultery? Stoning. How long would the uh, children of Israel have continued as a race if it had been applied based upon the heart that only God could see? Not long. See, God sees the hearts. Now, he did not allow, as an aside here, in the rules of Mosaic, rules of evidence, could not be based upon seeing people's hearts because we can't, only God does. It's the deeds, the outward actions for which in civil courts of law people were held to account. That's where the evidence has to be. Only God sees the heart. But Jesus said God does see the heart and that is tantamount to a death sentence. In God's eyes. Perfectly holy God. He says that if you hate someone in your heart, you're a murderer. Wait a minute. I haven't done anything to him. I just don't like him. I just, I'm glad when things happen that, to him that uh, uh, make him trip up. You know, yay, that team got it. That coach got his. You know, and I find myself slipping into that sometimes. And Jesus says, it's murder. Murder? Yes. You know where it leads if God the Father removed the restraining power of the Holy Spirit for a day? If he removed his spirit's restraint from our sinful nature for a day as a race, we would become just like we were in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 5, verse 8. God looked down on the children of men. And it's, it's also described in, chapter, uh, in Psalm 5. Uh, 14 and 54. But he says, says, God saw that the wickedness of mankind was very great. And that every, listen, every imagination of the intent of his heart was only evil all the time. Whoa. Oh, I'm not like that. Yes, you are, my friend. Apart from the grace of God, yes, you are, and yes, so am I. We're Adam's offspring. We're the progeny of a race that is in rebellion against God until and unless God does something for us. Praise God, he has. It's what we've been singing about this morning. It's why we come to him, to worship him today. It's because he's done something about it. Some years ago in the 1950s, I was... Uh, Still in, uh, in uh, elementary school, primary school, and uh, there, were, there were soldiers who'd come home from the Second World War, many of them veterans, 
of that war. Some of them had become Christians during the war or afterwards. Some had gone and were already believers, but many of them as they came back and and God dealt with their lives in terms of now that that war, that great campaign against the Axis powers of evil in the world has been won, what great purpose is there left for the greatest generation? To do. And for many of those believers, they had come into contact with other cultures in Papua New Guinea and in other places around the world who, who didn't know the gospel. And their cultures were untouched by the grace of God in Christ. And for these soldiers, there was a stirring of the Spirit of God. And there was a great movement a real mobilization in the 1950s of former soldiers from World War II for, in America going as missionaries to the hardest places on earth. Among them was a uh, farm boy from West Virginia who also served and uh, worked in Louisiana and then gone in as a cavalryman in, cavalryman in World War II. Some people hadn't quite got the memo that machine guns made cavalry charges uh, uh, passe, but uh, he was a cavalryman. And, and uh, eventually he ended up as one of Merrill's marauders, General Merrill, uh, Brigadier General Merrill, and his, his uh, brigade that dropped behind enemy lines in Burma, what was then Burma, modern-day Myanmar, in order to disrupt the, the logistics of the advancing... Um, Japanese, Imperial Japanese Army and its juggernaut of conquest. They took tremendous casualties. Uh, I think it was like 80% casualties, maybe more than that. And he was one, not killed, but, but wounded and sick. And was, uh, They managed to evacuate him as they'd managed to get most of the others out. And then what did he do as soon as he was well again, right back to the front, working his way through... Uh, what is now uh, overland over Tibet and then into China and and um, uh, the uh, and the flying tigers. He <laughs> he wasn't a pilot, but he worked with them and went on further north. He'd done quite a bit, but his work wasn't done. He'd married a young Canadian figure skater. She was beautiful. And she was talented and athletic. Her name was Mary, M-E-R-R-Y. And her heart was Mary, and she made him Mary. And they raised a beautiful family. And to this day have grandchildren and now great-grandchildren that he still has. And God called him to bring his family to the turmoil of post-war Belgian Congo, which then, while he was there, received its independence and plunged into tribal warfare, as happened with many of the lands that were suddenly, after the colonial era, independent. He brought the gospel to a tribe, and the tribe was pretty rough. But the Spirit of God worked through that family and that tribe, and and in the course of time, there were believers. And those believers were gathered together into a community of faith and they encouraged each other and learned what it meant to live out their lives in that tribal setting among their neighbors 
with a different set of values and a different goal in life and a different ultimate loyalty. And it made a difference. And more and more from that tribe began to be uh, converted. And then one day into the village came a delegation from a tribe a little further away, an enemy tribe with whom there had been incessant war for years, for generations. They came unarmed on a, a, um, a delegation of peace. They wanted to talk. They'd heard about Paul Long, and they wanted to ask him if he would come to their village and teach this same gospel message. And he said, I'll go on one condition. He said, I'll go if people, the believers from this tribe, will send a delegation to go with me, unarmed with me. You realize what that would have taken? Well, there was consternation, there was discussion. That decision was not reached overnight, and then when it was reached, there was the sending forth of a small delegation of men brave volunteers who were willing to go with Paul Long into the further into the jungles to this next tribe. And they did. They brought the gospel. And, and the gospel had its effect. And people were saved in that tribe. And a community of believers began to live out their lives there, conforming more and more to the image of Christ. And, and then, wouldn't you guess, from a further place, another tribe that was at enmity with both the first two and had been the most vicious of all the tribes in their wars, a delegation asking, come over into not Macedonia, but this place deeper in the Congo and help us. And again, the condition was the same. And so the second tribe, with a lump in their throat <laughs> and trust in their Savior, sent a delegation with Paul. Paul on, and with the members of the first tribe. And they went and had the same ministry and the same result. And they began to be called the third tribe or the new tribe. Because they weren't ours and they weren't the others. They were something else. Do you know that in the first century, Christians were called by the pagan Romans a third race? They weren't pagan like everybody else, and they weren't Jewish, out of which their Messiah had come. They were a third race, and they lived differently than either one. That's what God has done for you and me, Christ community. That's what we're doing here in Kennesaw, and it doesn't stop at Kennesaw. Our lives and our loyalties are now different because of Him. That's the old from which we've come, the new, though. God has inaugurated a new dynamic in believers' lives. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Some weeks ago, we looked at just these couple of verses, and, and uh, uh, we did some uh, meditation upon other aspects that I'll bring out this morning. I want to complement that this morning. The, the word love is, is really the word we directly derive our English 
philanthropy from? It's love of men. How could God love a race like He does? God so loved the world. He's not just referring to the elements of, of carbon and oxygen and hydrogen. God so loved the world, especially those who bear His image, humankind. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves men. And then we read that God the Son has redeemed us. Verse 6, through Jesus Christ our Savior. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9, in his last epistle that he ever wrote, as far as we know, he says to Timothy about Christ, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. You can't be more secure than that. When you make a choice to come to Jesus, don't be afraid that he'll turn you away. You couldn't make that choice if he hadn't already done so. No man, Jesus said, can come to me unless my Father draws him. And he also said, any, because of that, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. This is the God who cares for us and extends his grace to us, redeeming us in Christ. And God, the Holy Spirit, has cleansed and renewed us. Verse 5 goes on to say, he saved us, Christ saved us, God the Father saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, rebirth is one word. It means to uh, once more be, be generated or uh, come into being. And it's a new genesis, really, a second genesis. And then the, the renewal is actually a word that means to make new, coupled with the emphatic word uh, uh, preposition before it, Again, again made new. It couldn't be more specific and more pregnant with meaning. He has saved us through the washing of rebirth. We're new people. And the being made new again by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously. He's talking really about what the Holy Spirit does in the change of heart. Ezekiel 36, verses uh, uh, 25 through 27, we read, uh, God says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. When uh, Jesus ascended into heaven, he distributed gifts to men, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, and that's explained to us. It's, it's uh, uh, a fulfillment. The quotation is from from Psalm 68, 18. But there in, in the Hebrew, it, 
it seems to say, thou hast ascended on high. It's translated in many translations. You ascended on high, you received gifts from men. But Paul says here, clearly in the Greek in Ephesians 4, you ascended on high, you gave gifts to men. How could that be? Uh, Both are true. Both are true in a sense. Why? Because in the original language, the Hebrew, of Psalm 68, 18, what it really says is you have ascended on high, you have received gifts in Adam. In Adam's seed. Only it's not Adam's seed. It's the seed of the woman fulfilled the prophecy from Genesis chapter 3 right after the fall. I'll put enmity, God said to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your seed only used of men except in that place. The seed of the woman. Referring to Christ. Your seed and her seed. He will, he, not they, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Fulfilled in Christ. And so then we find he's called the last Adam in the New Testament. Many places he's called the last Adam. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's the last Adam. He is the new humanity as we ought to have been. There's a line in uh, The Return of the King, the third installment of The Lord of the Rings for those who watch films and and uh, someone said, thought you were Saruman. And uh, to Gandalf, as he's come back, as it were, from the dead, and he says, I am Saruman, rather Saruman as he ought to have been. <laughs> Interesting. It's a little motif. Tolkien was a Roman Catholic and had a, a Christian uh, influence on his worldview and thinking that sometimes, often actually, comes through in his writings. Now, he also had uh, uh, some... Um, in my view, uh, less than biblical uh, views on some things. For example, merit, that people can store up merit. And the Bible says there's only one source of merit, and that's Christ. That's Christ. But you see, Jesus is Adam as he ought to have been. He's the last Adam. And so in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church for the first time in the New Testament fullness, Peter stands up and says, This Jesus ascended into heaven and has received, received, received the Holy Spirit whom he has poured out upon you. That's a difference. It's a big difference. We had more time. We talked more about the subject of what theologians call pneumatology. Pneuma, uh, Pneuma, the word in New Testament for the Spirit of God. Uh, But there are three significant differences we'd find between the uh, pre-Pentecost activity of the Holy Spirit and that with us after Pentecost. The first one is what that the, the Spirit of God only came for certain times on people. Second, only certain people, not everyone, was a was uh, overshadowed by and anointed by the Spirit. Thirdly, certain tasks. Just those tasks. Bezalel and Aholiab are artists like Josh who, who help make things work for the tabernacle in a way that's beautiful. The Spirit of God helps them do that. The priest Aaron and his sons, the Spirit of God helps them do that. 
Moses, of course, the prophets, the kings. But you see, in Pentecost, here comes the Spirit of God poured out, received by King Jesus as one of us. He's seated on the right hand of God and something different. The ascension is not just that Jesus took his seat back. He never left it. He is, in his divine nature, God and is everywhere. His human nature, to which he had joined himself, taken to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, had a beginning. He, his divine nature didn't. He's one person. What pertains to the one pertains to the person. What pertains to the other nature pertains also to the person. And now you have man seated on the throne of God. You get that? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Not any man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. For the first time in all of the history of the cosmos since it was sung into being at the command of the spoken word of the God, the Creator. And Jesus receives for us the Spirit of God. God does not give the Spirit by measure, by quota to Him we're complete in him who is the head, but we're not complete by ourselves, any of us. And so the second thing is that, that he sheds the, the Spirit of God not only on everyone. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your, old men, your young men shall uh, see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 where that prophecy is given. It's given to everyone. And in Ephesians chapter 4, to everyone, Christ apportions the gifts. Secondly, it's for certain tasks, but those tasks and the equipping for them, those gifts are not temporary. Those gifts are not temporary. The gifts and calling of God, Paul writes to the Romans, are without turning. And then they are not only for everyone, not only for all times, but I cover every gift. And none of us has them all, except Christ, who receives them all for us and distributes them according to Ephesians 4 to us, so that we have a designed interdependence, not dependence, not independence, interdependence, where we each need each other to be complete. And the gifts God has given me he intends to help others, to help you. And the gifts you have, He intends to be a help to me. My gifts are not primarily for me. And my needs aren't going to be met by the gifts that God's given me. And the same with you. We need each other, Christ community. We're reflecting in microcosm in this in this fellowship of believers, we're reflecting the larger worldwide and down through history body of Christ with our interconnectedness. God's purpose finally is for us to live out the gospel in contrast to the world. Read verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Why? Because it's the outworking of God's grace in the gospel. Verse 8, those who have trusted 
in God, then what does that look like for those who've trusted in God to work out the gospel, verses 1 and 2? Remind the people to be seven things, subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Now, in other places, there are different descriptions, but each of these are a representative of what it looks like. We do look different in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 17 through 24. Uh, we read these words. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Ah, verse 20, you, however, did not come to know Christ in that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What does it mean to image God? God made human beings in his image, after his likeness. Well, it means to be like Jesus. You want to see how God in the flesh looks? Gaze upon him. Emulate him. Not that our emulating him saves us. That's cart before the horse. It's the outworking of that which has saved us, the grace of God that works repentance and faith in our hearts and get, leads us to trust in Him as Savior and follow Him with our whole heart as Lord. And that then will begin to grow in our lives and people will begin to take note that we've been with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, well-known verse, Paul writes, um, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that is what we are, brothers and sisters. That is what we are. What if, what if you had a dear friend, a dear friend, who loved you very much and was getting married? And uh, you were a young man or a young woman, and he purchased for you a tuxedo. I mean, it was a real special one. Brooks Brothers has nothing on this tuxedo. Or a gown, you know, I mean, this one would stun anywhere in Washington, D.C. in their formal ball. And that, that was the groomsman's attire, the, the bridesmaid's attire for a wedding that was going to be great and wonderful and would show off to all the friend who was being married and would allow people to to share in that person's joy. And uh, having got dressed and all set to go, the morning of the wedding, you headed off and uh, 
uh, you saw something in the field nearby and it looked enticing. You stopped the car, got out, and you played American Gladiator with a bunch of other people rolling around in the mud and the dirt, tearing things, getting it soiled, and then she showed up at the wedding. <laughs> We'd say, that's not very fitting. That's incongruous. That's, uh, that's just not nice. <laughs> it doesn't fit. Brothers and sisters, that's hypothetical. What's not hypothetical is that Jesus, if you're trusting in him, has redeemed you from that. He's given you his raiment of righteousness. That's called justification. And it's not forensic fiction. I declare this ugly person handsome. He's still ugly, but we call him handsome. So in my eyes, no, no, no. God has said, they are resplendent in the righteousness of Christ. Imputed righteousness, not their own. And there is an imparted righteousness that comes with it, that begins at that time. And that we grow into, and more and more, become like the one whose image we're being conformed into. And we will be perfected in that, Paul says. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a calling. We have the opportunity here in Kennesaw and its environments to be a lighthouse to the community and to a culture. Our lives will run counter to the culture in our ultimate allegiance and value system and our worldview will be different. Not for the sake of being different, People who are different for the sake of being different are usually just bizarre. <laughs> and we're not called to be bizarre. <laughs> we're called to be like Jesus. That's not bizarre. But it may be detested by those who don't appreciate it. We may be an accountant for a company and we refuse to falsify the books. Everybody does it. It helps the company. What are you saying? That all the rest of us are, are wrong? You goody two-shoes. You may not be appreciated. You say, well, I can't do it because it's wrong and because I can't live that way. You may lose your job. You may pay a price. Jesus paid a bigger one. And he promised never to leave you or forsake you. The psalmist wrote, I have been young and now I'm old. I can identify Yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. The one who calls you is faithful. He'll do it. Let's pray.